Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. I'm John Breen, Global Risk at Sibylline. And with me today is James Hannan, who is our intelligence analyst for North America. Today, we are going to be discussing all things COVID-related on the back of the discovery of the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2 and the re-implementation of restrictions across Europe, including the UK government's decision on Wednesday to implement its Plan B restrictions. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware that the Omicron variant was first detected in South Africa on the 9th of November, and the WHO subsequently categorized the Omicron as a variant of concern. So in the last two weeks or so, we have seen stock prices wobble, but for the most part, financial markets seem to be taking the news in their stride. Indeed, there seems to be a wider pattern of declining pandemic-related volatility for markets and businesses, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. However, high levels of uncertainty around Omicron remain from South Africa suggests Omicron is milder than the Delta strain, but WHO has warned that it is too early to make any conclusions. How much protection vaccines provide against Omicron is unclear. Early data from Pfizer indicates that its vaccine is effective, particularly after three doses, and European and North American economies are rolling out boosters to their populations while simultaneously tightening restrictions. And we've also seen protests uh, proliferate across Europe in response to those restrictions. The WHO, however, is warning that the rollout of boosters is exacerbating inequities around vaccine access, which is responsible for the proliferation of new variants. So overall, it's quite a confusing and uncertain picture, and there's a lot of moving parts. But James, just on your first impressions, I mean, how do you think the emergence of the Omicron variant is going to impact kind of existing pandemic trends? Do you think the variant is going to merit a, a different restriction approach from at-risk countries, or, or how do you see this playing out? Thanks, John. So I think while we were aware of the risk and the likelihood of another variant emerging, you know, I feel like the virus response strategy, particularly from countries in the Western Hemisphere and in Europe, has been quite resolute at first. You know, it's inevitable that the virus will still spread, as seen by, I think, at least 18 countries in the European Union reporting some type of transmission as of today. And while this may impact and exacerbate current virus trends, I don't think we'll see a huge shift in terms of response strategy. Most European countries have placed an emphasis on whether it's temporary lockdown restrictions or these kind of reactionary restrictions based on health infrastructure data rather than case rates. So hospitalizations and ICU occupancy. You know, I think this will maintain its course and be the primary function for restriction triggering throughout most of the Western Hemisphere. Again, while the variant itself maybe poses a risk of increasing transmission in the short term, I think the main concern, particularly for Europe right now, is the current wave of infections driven by the Delta variant. You're already seeing quite a few countries reimpose restrictions, uh, expand the use of COVID health passes to regulate non-essential activities. Just earlier this week, you had Italy introduce a new pass based on booster vaccine status. And as you mentioned in the intro, the UK too, with its plan B. And I think this is going to be a continual trend heading into Q1 2022 is this kind of expanded use of immunization status to regulate certain activities in order to blunt further spread of the virus moving into the new year. 
But I think that on the overall basis, you know, in terms of viral trends and global trends, you will see a continuation of what is already there. However, the chance of that being exacerbated and further pressure being placed on health systems has inevitably increased. And that, you know, in a follow on from those restrictions, there is also the increased risk of social unrest, particularly in Europe. You know, we've seen a wave of demonstrations against new lockdown restrictions, most notably. You had something like 40,000 protesters in Vienna over the weekend in response to their lockdown extension and numerous clashes with police. And that is also going to be a sustained risk that is likely to continue into the coming months, driven particularly by the Omicron variant. Just on top of the restrictions, James, we've also seen kind of, you know, some countries implementing vaccine mandates, particularly in Germany and Austria for unvaccinated residents. And we've seen a vaccine mandate in Greece for over 60s. I mean, is that going to reflect a wider trend across Europe? I mean, the European Commission is calling for discussions on a vaccine mandate, but, you know, it's unlikely to get any consensus. And we've seen some opposing views within Europe. And again, we've seen kind of legal challenges in the United States. So what's your sense out in terms of kind of the, the overall picture for vaccine mandates in Europe and North America? Yeah, well, I think it's um it's an interesting conversation point and definitely going to be something that is meriting further discussion by national governments, particularly in the European Union. I know the incoming German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he's also voiced his support for mm-hmm. some limited immunization mandates. And I do think that we will start to see that conversation materialize into maybe some legislation entering 2022. Although, as you mentioned, there is quite an opposition by both political parties and large components of the populace in many countries in Europe that could uh, inhibit the implementation of such stringent requirements, which is similar to what we're seeing in the U.S., although um, given the power of the executive branches, Biden administration has been able to at least enact the vaccine mandates. However, their implementation, as we've seen over the past coming weeks, has been you know snared up in several legal challenges. Just this week, the last one has limited the White House's federal vaccine mandate for federal contractors, which is effectively the last component of the federal response strategy that was actually active. So now, as of right now, there is court orders blocking every component of the of Biden's vaccination mandate from entering effect. And I do think that this kind of sustained legal challenge is something that is likely to continue, driven particularly by Republican-controlled states that have been ardent opponents of implementing vaccine mandates. You have, I believe, Florida, which has gone so far as to implement legislation in several packages to prohibit the use of them by private employers and by federal contractors within the state. And I think, especially as you gain, kind of move towards the political climate of the 2022 midterms, which is also actually similar to some provincial elections in Canada, you will see the polarization around such strict COVID-19 regulations, particularly immunization requirements, as this kind of political football that could be used to either galvanize support or be this kind of divisive issue future. So I don't think that those legal challenges will abate. And this is particularly concerning for companies operating in jurisdictions like the U.S. When you try to implement a, a health protocol, some kind of comprehensive response strategy, and operate across multiple jurisdictions with multiple legal frameworks at a state level and a federal level, you are left in a position that is difficult to manage and will likely expose you to some degree of legal challenges. 
And so this is something that is worthwhile to keep tabs on, particularly for, you know, defense and federal contractors. This is going to be an area of of particular concern as most of them are located in states, huge defense infrastructure um, capabilities located in states that have very strict limits on COVID-19 mandates, most notably Texas, especially with their aerospace and defense industry. So that's something to keep an eye on moving forward. And I do think maybe to a less degree, you can see similar legal challenges or legal ramifications in Europe based on differing member state response strategies. However, again, to a much lesser degree than the U.S., and just to pick up on something you said, there was kind of, you know, business uncertainties. And I think that that's something that we've kind of nuanced in our forecast, certainly since kind of Q1 of, of 2021 in our reports and forecasts. What are the implications for businesses in terms of kind of, you know, economic re- reopening strategies and resumption of international travel, particularly across Europe and the United States? Are, are you seeing any patterns emerging from that? Well, first off, I, I think, you know, a lot of the epidemiological data that we have yet to require on the Omicron variant will probably dictate the severity of its impact on like the long term reopening and economic recovery strategies. I feel like the long term projection for at least developed nations that have already had ample access to vaccines and have somewhat robust healthcare infrastructures that will remain quite steady. However, there will be a severe variance in recovery rates across industry sectors, particularly, as you mentioned, international travel. Um, You're seeing quite a few states almost immediately upon detection of Omicron implement travel bans for high-risk locations or tighten overall travel regulations in general. Uh, The UK, again, as an example, has tightened its uh, entry testing requirements just last week. And so this is a trend that I think will continue to fluctuate entering 2022. It's a very fragile industry, as Sibyline has kind of forecasted since the beginning of 2021. And that challenging road to pre-pandemic flight service levels will probably persist well into 2022, driven by both the Omicron variant, current infection waves, and the risk of further variant proliferation in the coming months. That's really interesting. So we've talked about kind of the uncertainties for business to kind of the current landscape. I mean, Going forward, what is the likelihood of the emergence of additional mutated strains? You know, we've heard the WHO vaccine expert group criticizing the administration of booster vaccines across the Northern Hemisphere, particularly developed economies, and that that's going to exacerbate inequities around vaccine access. And we know that these new variants emerge, particularly where there is uncontrolled spread amongst unvaccinated populations. We know that this came from South Africa, where they've got a low level of fully vaccinated. You know, what does that say in terms of kind of what businesses can expect over the next year? Yeah, well, I think, unfortunately, for the global state, the the likelihood of more mutations and ones that are significant enough to elevate them to variants of concern, like the Omicron variant, are quite likely. We saw a similar situation develop with the Delta variant in, at that point, what was a very unvaccinated India in April of 2021. And so I do think that uh, you make a very good point that the areas of concern are regions that still struggle to access sufficient vaccine supplies or are dealing with high levels of vaccine hesitancy. And out of these areas, there is a high likelihood of variant proliferation in the next uh, six months, you know, just looking at Africa itself. South Africa, which has a notably higher immunization rate 
than most other African states, it's still only at about 25 to 35% fully vaccinated. And so that in itself is testament to where developing nations and lower middle income countries are struggling to grapple with pandemic recovery efforts and how mm-hmm. that can then have this follow on effect for the global recovery timetable. In, in countries with even less monitoring capabilities in South Africa, you're not even uh, able to detect or be aware of certain variants prior to their emergence on the international scene. And I think that um, speaks itself to the need to more equally distribute vaccines across the developing world. I think that despite current efforts and you know the WHO-led COVAX initiative, the implementation of booster strategies is going to provide short-term gain for developed countries while at the same time limiting that or jeopardizing potentially that uh, long-term recovery road. On that, in terms of kind of, you know, the developing economies and the access to vaccines, I mean, these economies already are situated in kind of a a macroeconomic environment that's kind of already constraining the opportunities for uh, social mobility. And it's kind of exacerbating sectarian divisions in, in kind of, you know, countries with areas of low social capital. You know, if we're talking about the Middle East and North Africa, these are countries that, you know, import about 60 percent of their calories from outside the region. And we already have high food prices where we can probably see more restrictions in these countries going forward. I mean, is there a potential for political instability or any type of unrest that could impact uh, business operations in that regard? I think, you know, speaking of of areas like MENA, I think there's a, a likelihood that follow on or secondary impacts of pandemic reopening pressures or inaccessibility of vaccines could result in this kind of sustained regional tensions or social unrest that could develop into countries. I mean, to a much lesser degree, we're seeing this in Europe right now. The protests are significant. However, they're not disruptive to the point where they are devolving into national riots. However, unfortunately, given the state of global economic affairs, I do, I do feel like the future of the COVID-19 pandemic will absolutely dictate these kind of second order effects, particularly in in lower middle income countries. James, thank you very much for those insights. It's certainly quite a confusing and uncertain picture for businesses. We're now going to move on to Rhiannon Phillips from our MENA desk with the weekly forecast and events to watch. Thanks, John. In sub-Saharan Africa, the Yonama Civil Society Group has announced that it will hold anti-government protests across Senegal on the 10th of December. So far, protest routes have been confirmed only in Dakar, marching to Cheikh Anti-Diop University, but further protests will likely take place in other cities. The issue is highly controversial in Senegal, as many opposition supporters accuse President Macky Sall of using the judiciary to silence his critics. Similarly, in Burkina Faso on the 11th of December, anti-government protests are planned in cities across the country. Protests are likely to be met by excessive use of force by security services, elevating risks to businesses, staff and assets in urban areas. In the Middle East and North Africa, the US Special Envoy for Iran, Rob Malley, is planning to travel to Vienna at the weekend to join Iranian counterparts and resume nuclear talks with the hope of reviving the 2015 nuclear deal. And on the 17th of December, a three-week curfew will begin in Lebanon for unvaccinated residents, with local businesses likely to face operational disruptions, which could drive an upward tick in civil unrest across major cities, including Beirut. On the 15th of December in Europe, Kill the Bill protests are scheduled to take place outside of the House of Lords in Victoria Tower Gardens in London. Protesters are expected to congregate at five o'clock local time, but it is unlikely to cause any significant disruption to transport routes and signifies a low risk of domestic unrest. 
Equally in Europe, on the 16th of December, the European Council Summit will take place in Brussels, where EU leaders are expected to meet to discuss various issues, including the COVID-19 crisis, the energy crisis, and the migrant crisis on the Polish-Belarusian border. Following the teleconference meeting earlier this week, US President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin have agreed to further high-level talks to discuss the current security arrangements in Eastern Europe. These talks will likely begin in the coming weeks and will provide an opportunity for both sides to reach a compromise over Ukraine, amid concerns over potential Russian military action early next year. In Asia-Pacific, on the 18th of December, Hong Kong will hold legislative council elections. These are the first legislative elections since major electoral overhaul by Beijing, with pro-democracy parties likely sidelined. Whilst localised protests are possible, the fear related to the national security law and likely heavily, heavy security presence reduces the likelihood of serious unrest. Additionally, turnout is expected to be low as a result of a lack of genuine competition or choices. In addition, the ongoing diplomatic boycott movement on the Beijing Winter Olympic Games continues to drive tensions between China and the West, hyping anti-West and anti-US sentiment in China. It's likely that other countries will follow the boycott in the coming weeks. In Chile, on the 19th of December, the presidential runoff election between left-wing candidate Gabriel Boric and far-right candidate Jose Antonio Cast will take place, as both candidates reach to the centre to obtain the support of the non-aligned voters. Whilst markets have supported Cast, a Boric victory, which appears unlikely, according to several pollsters, would likely reduce unrest risks and political instability over the next 12 months. Thank you very much, Rhiannon. And as always, if you have any questions or concerns, please contact us at info at Thank you.